All right. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. We began this uh, chapter last week. uh, Pretty much just an introduction to the chapter. It's really a continuing thought from chapter 17. That being, of course, that uh, God is now uh, judging or will be judging. uh, From uh, John's perspective, the apostle, as he's reading, as he's uh, uh, seeing the the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last days. He's looking ahead. He's being given that opportunity to see ahead in the future what is taking place. Well, he sees this mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, finally being judged. And uh, we spent a lot of time in chapter 17, so we wouldn't have to spend that much time in chapter 18. And we won't. Not as much time as the other. But uh, it was important last week to look at the first couple of verses down through verse 3. And I'll explain what we, what we looked at uh, in just a moment. But let's read again, if you will, from verse 1 of chapter 18. Are you all hearing me okay? Any, any problems anywhere? No? Everything's okay? Good. All right. Revelation 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and and the earth was illuminated with his glory. After these things, it means that there was was a a second part to the judgment because there's a second part to the mystery Babylon. Chapter 17 focused its attention pretty much on the the aspect of its its religious origins. Uh, And Babylon certainly is, is a religious system of worship but not of the, of the true God. And then as we get into chapter 18, there's another aspect to Mystery Babylon, and that is, of course, that which contains everything else, political, commercial, and otherwise. So this is now the fullness of the, um, of the judgment that God is bringing upon this particular system that is completely anti-Christ, that is completely anti-Israel, that is completely anti-God, as it were. Everything that is opposed to what we believe in, in Christ and what He's done, there is this complete counterfeit in, 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 in the sense of religion and in just everyday situations and things. So after these things, I saw that angel coming and then, Uh, The earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. There's that dual issue. Not only is is Babylon uh, a duality, but so is the judgment that comes upon it, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. We covered that pretty clearly last week. And then in verse 3, it says, For all the nations have drunk. Of the wine of her wrath of her fornication, or of the wrath of her fornication, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And of course, this is spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery, as it were. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. We're going to spend a little bit more time on that verse as we go into the last uh, or the next few verses up to verse 8 tonight. And I heard another voice from heaven uh, saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. 
For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. So now, not only is there a a dual uh, judgment, but now the judgment is to be doubled. So there's always that understanding of of, uh, duality, as it were. And in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, remember she wore scarlet and crimson, or in some cases purple and crimson. Uh, those the, 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 the first thing that people react to is those are colors that are, that are uh, liturgical, in other words, in the religious sense. But you have to remember the whole picture is that we're dealing with a lot of riches, uh, and, and, and I mean to tell you that riches that are attractive to the whole world, therefore we're dealing with colors, which was back in chapter 17, colors that are royalty and sinful. Royalty, the purple or the, the, the um, uh, crimson as it were, uh, that's a royal color. When they mocked Jesus at the, at the crucifixion, what, before the crucifixion, what did they put on him? A, a, a crimson robe, or some would say a purple robe, because it was a robe of royalty. They were mocking him because they said, oh, here's the king of the Jews, you see. But the color crimson, or scarlet, I should say, the color scarlet, is really tied to sin. We know that because even in, in Isaiah chapter 1, it tells us, though your sins be as scarlet, They shall be white as snow when we reason together with God and we come to understanding Him. So those those are the two things that we need to understand about this mystery Babylon. Rich and sinful in in a lot of ways. Uh, But notice what it says of her. Uh, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. And therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with an alternative view as to who this mystery Babylon is. I've I've stated very clearly, I do not believe at all that it is Rome, that it is the the Roman Catholic Church, though I truly believe the Roman Catholic Church has adopted a lot of the uh, Babylonian practices within its ceremonies and rites. You You know, hand in hand with what would be considered biblical. Which is wrong. So, but, but that doesn't make Rome and, and, and the Catholic Church mystery Babylon. The other thing I, I, I mentioned was rather than looking west to Europe to say, well, you know, Europe is, is this ten nation confederacy that the, the, the beast is sitting upon, we have to think about the Roman Empire from the standpoint that there were two, two legs to it. Remember the, 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 uh, the statue in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Both statues that, that are given in vision 
are, are with two legs. And, and the two legs represent not only the western side, but the eastern side. And most importantly, the eastern side, because that's where much of the Roman Empire was headed. And where we saw a lot of substantiation in history, as well as in the scriptures. So, as I mentioned, that there, is city, there are cities like Dubai in the United Arab Emirates that are a part of the, Saudi, uh, the whole Saudi landscape building towers up into the heavens, right? The highest buildings are built or the tallest buildings built. And even Saudi Arabia in, 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 in Jeddah, they're, they're going to try to build even a taller building than that. Why? Because it's significant. It's tied all the way back to chapter 11 of Genesis where man decided they were going to build a tower that reaches into heaven. And this was the beginning of false religion as well as uh, a, 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 a false humanism in the sense that, you know, well, now it's going to be human uh, making our own gods and doing our own thing and, and rejecting the true God who created them. So, in that particular sense, I want you to see some pictures. You see, oh, to the left there is, is King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia being greeted by one of the major clerics of, of the Orthodox Church. And interesting, isn't it? Both are considered world leaders, religious on one side or one end, and uh, religious and commercial on the other. Oh, and then there's, of course, uh, the, I believe he's the, the president of France, they're next to uh, Abdullah again. And then, of course, somebody we all know with a big smile. I don't know what he's so happy about, but there he is shaking hands with him. Oh, don't forget that the previous president also did the same thing. All right? Very important to note. He's kind of happy. Not as happy as President Obama because we see him again. Probably happier now because somebody gave him a present to wear around his neck. Uh, I don't know what that is, but here he is with Abdullah again. And then, oh, they're holding hands. I don't want to stay on that one too long. Uh, but he's holding hands with him too. And you know who that is? That's the previous president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, who actually stood at the pulpit of the United Nations. And by the way, that's what I'm calling it, the pulpit of the United Nations, and he declared the coming of the Islamic Mahdi to all. Where he's allowed to do that, no one else can go up and talk about their religion. Isn't that interesting? But there he is. By the way, they're not friends. They're not friends. One is Sunni, the other Shia. Well, actually, uh, King, King Abdullah is Wahhabi. I mean, that's even worse, in a sense. But the the point being, they're not enemies. As a matter of fact, from Ahmadinejad's standpoint, he'd like to get rid of these rich guys. As a matter of fact, we've already touched upon that in chapter 17, where it tells us that the beast that she's writing, which the harlot is writing, is going to kill the harlot. Keep that in mind. Here's someone else you all know, Mrs. Clinton. 
Why am I doing this? Why are we, why are we, why are we looking at these pictures? Because what we've been reading in chapter 17 and 18 is that the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth have been getting rich. from Mystery Babylon. Not the religious part. That's the deception. This is the reality of the rest of the story. The political. The commercial. The material. It's all here. When we ended our study last time, we focused our attention upon the two covenants that were mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. And I asked you the question, do you think that maybe we've missed something in, in, in looking at Galatians chapter 4 where he is describing the difference between the bondwoman and the free woman, Hagar and, and Sarah, and the sons that were born to them each, and not include that in some kind of a prophetic sense? And I think that when we looked at it, we saw very clearly some prophetic connection. I want to read it to you again and begin from, from where we left off last time and begin here once again. Galatians 4.22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and uh, he of the free woman through promise. In other words, the bondwoman being Hagar gave birth to Ishmael who was born according to the flesh. He was not the son of promise. But the free woman being Sarah gave birth through promise to Isaac, the son of promise. And then it says, which things are symbolic. Now, he takes this and, and breaks it down for us symbolically for these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. And I, I want you to, if you will, underline or keep or write the word Sinai here. It's very important to our understanding of the rest of this, uh, of this study tonight. And then in verse uh, 25 it says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. In Arabia, not Egypt. Another significant point and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Uh, let's disregard the last part of that verse just for a moment, because it corresponds to Jerusalem. What we did a few weeks ago was make a, a, a comparison contrast between the city called Babylon and the city called Jerusalem. Especially the new Jerusalem, because one is holy and the other is not. The other is sinful. That's the contrast. You see, we're going to see. Antichrist is, is, is the contrast to Jesus Christ. There are all of these counterfeits that are existing now that are going to be judged and destroyed when Christ comes. But then it says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, what's the connection? The connection is that the contrast to Jerusalem being the mother of us who believe by faith 
the mother of us all, believers, the contrast is the city called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the mother of harlots. There's the contrast. Now, it is very clear that there is a tremendous difference between a belief system that focuses its attention upon its adherence, being set free from the bondage of sin, death, self, and hell. Which belief system is that? That is the belief that we are in, which is what? We believe in one God, in three persons. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Redeemer. We believe that there is a person called the Holy Spirit, and He's called God, but there is only one God. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. So, making this very clear, then there is a big difference between this belief system that we are in and the belief system that states of itself that it is a religion of bondage. What does the word Islam itself mean? Submission. But not submission to freedom, but submission to bondage. One has its, as its capital a heavenly city, as we've just read. A heavenly city which is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. While the other has as its capital the barren wilderness and desert of Arabia. Which is, as we are looking at and have been looking at, and I'm making that suggestion that we consider this, that it is the mystery Babylon. So how do we know this? And what could be the connection to Islam? Well, I want you to consider, if you will, that word Sinai. I ask you to look at Sinai. And there's a phrase that we're given way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 16... And I'm going to read that here to you in just a minute. But the phrase is the wilderness of sin, S-I-N. Don't look at that wilderness of sin as being something that's connected to sinfulness, okay? It's another word, the wilderness of sin. Let's look at it, Exodus 16, verse 1. And it's a long verse, so it's two slides here. But Exodus 16, verse 1 says, And they journeyed, this is the children of Israel who are now going through the wilderness, they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin. Which is, by the way, in, in, a, in a portion of the Sinai Peninsula, if you look at it like a, like a diamond uh, that's upside down diamond, the point being at the bottom, the wilderness of sin is right at the very bottom of that peninsula. Now, Again, they, they journeyed from Elam. Uh, all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after, the de- after they departed from the land of Egypt. Now, here's the important uh, connection. The terms Sinai and Sin, S-I-N in both words, Sinai and Sin, as used in the text here in Exodus 16, verse 1, comes from a Semitic word, that is translated for the moon deity sin. As a matter of fact, sin, the word sin there is, 
is the, is the name of the moon deity that uh, was widely worshipped in pre-Islamic Arabia, uh, uh, Canaan, the area of Canaan that includes Israel today and, and parts of Syria and, and um, uh, uh, Lebanon and so on. But also Mesopotamia. So what we're really saying is that the moon god was worshipped way back then throughout what we know as the Middle East. Mostly by nomadic tribes, but even by larger nations. And I'll get to that in just a second, because you see the wilderness of sin then is clearly the desert, which is wilderness, the desert of the moon god. The desert of the moon god. In fact, the last king of Babylon, the last king of Babylon, you may not know him by this name, but his name was Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S, Nabonidus. And he, uh, he lived from 555 to 539 B.C. And I'll explain who he is in just a moment. But this Nabonidus built Taima Arabia. Taima Arabia, which is in Arabia itself, to be the center of moon god worship. Here was a Babylonian king that actually embraced the moon god and worshipped the moon god above all of the Babylonian gods. Now, the history of Islam is very similar in this particular case. That everybody says, well, you know, Islam worships one God only. And a lot of people say, well, Allah is the same God as the God of Israel and the God of the Christian. No, it isn't. He isn't. It isn't. He, it, whatever. It isn't. It isn't. I, I used to, I got so frustrated Back around uh, after, after 9-11 when our, our own presidents and, and, and other world leaders were saying, yes, we worship the same God. No, we don't. Why were we killing each other if we did? If it was the same God. Obviously that God couldn't control, can't control His people. But here's the thing. If you know a little bit of, of, the, of the history of, of Islam, what, what Muhammad did was actually choose one God over many of the gods that were being worshipped by the Bedouin tribes and all the people that lived in Arabia at the time. The Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites are the Arabians, in, this, in essence. So they had a lot of gods. You know, the Kaaba, the thing that they walk around at Mecca, you know, every, every time they go there, you know, when they get together and they walk around. And, you know, uh, that's supposed to be where all of, the, all of their gods are. And out of all of that was one, one God that they, that they worship, which is Allah. But here's the thing. Here's the connection that we need to make. This Nabonidus actually went to Tamya, or Taima, I should say, Arabia, and he left Babylon to his son. And he spent his time at this place worshiping the moon god while his son 
Belshazzar. Anybody heard that name before? That's in the Bible. Belshazzar. In Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar ruled. That, Belshazzar was, was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Even though in the book of Daniel it says that, uh, you know, that Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Well, it was. They, that's the way that they talked about their royalty families and all. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the, fa- the father of them all. But, but in essence, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, physically the grandfather of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar ruled from Babylon while Nebuchadnezzar was over there worshiping the moon god. Only to be conquered. Belshazzar, and this is what chapter 5 of Daniel tells us, only to be conquered by Darius the Mede and the Medo-Persians. Read it tonight in Daniel chapter 5. So is it any wonder then, now listen carefully, is it any wonder that one of the key symbols of Islam is the crescent moon. Anywhere that they went, if, if when you go to Israel, uh, which I hope you will go with us uh, in January, when we talk about the old city and the ancient city, when 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 the uh, when the Muslims uh, took control of the city, rather than have any other thing on on this uh, on the walls, the one thing that they put above everything else was a crescent moon. Because in fact they still are worshiping the moon god. Now here's the interesting thing about all of that. This moon worship actually goes back a lot further than Daniel chapter 5. You want to know where it goes back? It goes all the way back. And probably before, I I wouldn't doubt that it goes all the way back to uh, Genesis 11. But where we can see a connection to the moon is in Judges chapter 8. So I'd like for you to turn there in just a moment. Uh, you can turn there now if you want. But in the time of Gideon, everybody has heard of Gideon, right? Gideon and his defeating of the Midianites, Amalekites, and Ishmaelites, the Arabians. Again, keep this in mind. In the time of Gideon defeating the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Ishmaelites, who actually in those days also went around invading people. And this is the reason why when we first meet Gideon, he's inside of a, you know, he's down in a a kind of a place where nobody can see him, you know, um, winnowing the wheat and all of that. And and, and because, uh, you know, the, the invading armies were coming and that's when the Lord calls him to raise up an army and then, you know, 10,000 were too much and he ended up with 300. So these 300 are with Gideon, you see. And there, we, there was this pursuit, and I, I want to go through the story very quickly, but there was this pursuit by Gideon and his 300 men of two kings named Zeba and Zalmunna, or Zeba and Zalmunna. Zeba and Zalmunna were kings of Midian. And in capturing them and slaying them, this is what we're told. Just to take you to this one verse, Judges 8 verse 21. It says, so Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. Because uh, Gideon had had told his son to go and kill them, but but the son didn't want to do it. He was kind of feeling kind of young and all that kind of stuff. So so Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So they're kind of, you know, uh, embarrassing him there, I guess. Well, by not 
that embarrassed because notice what happens in the rest of the verse. So Gideon arose and he killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And I want you to notice it says, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. He took the crescent ornaments that were on the camels' necks. Crescent ornaments. And there's a very important word that we deal with in the, cres- in the word crescent there. If you have King James, you don't see the word crescent, but it's in the word ornaments, uh, you know, the, com- the combination. Same thing in the New King James or the King James. The King James, uh, New King James says crescent ornaments, giving us the, the, the full description of the word that is being used for that. And it's very interesting that the word for crescent ornaments, which, which is the word saharonim in the Hebrew, Saharonim or Shaharonim is very similar to the word that is used in Isaiah 14. Do I I remember what Isaiah 14 is about? Oh, Lucifer, son of Shahar, Shaharim. Son of the morning, it says, right? Or the morning star. But the connection isn't to a star, it's to the moon. In the language. The linguistics of it, you see. So, Saharonim is very similar to the word that is used in Isaiah 14 for the morning, which is Shahar. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Helel is the name. Helel is Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of Shahar. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. What are we seeing in, in Revelation 18? That the nations have been weakened by mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Lucifer's name, as I said in Hebrew, is Halel ben Shahar. Halel ben Shahar. Saharonim, Shahar. Shining star, son of the dawn. Just some things to think about. The connections are impressive, I think. Getting back to Mystery Babylon the Great, if, if the great harlot is described as a great city that rules over the kings of the earth, then we can assume that she can be defined geographically and politically as well as religiously as an entity, whether it be a large region, state, or nation. In other words, because it's called a great city does not necessarily mean that it has to be a city of, by itself. Because when you think about it, that's what Jerusalem is. The new Jerusalem is much bigger than it being just a city, isn't it? We're, descri- we're going to see that description when we get near the end of Revelation. Hopefully before Jesus comes again. So we're going to get there, but you know, we, we, just, we need to take these steps to, to make sure that we're understanding all of this other stuff. We've already made that contrast actually between the two, the great cities. The great city of Babylon and the great city of New Jerusalem. We've made that connection already. So now we need to move on. And we go to verses 4 and 5 and it says in our text, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. 
for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now the Lord warns His people who are living in Babylon when that time comes. Now the first suggestion is going to be, of course, that the people that are His people that are living there are believers. Tribulation saints is what we've been calling them since chapter 6 of book of Revelation. Because if the church has already been taken out of the way because of all of the things that are going to be happening during the seven years of tribulation, then we know there's also going to be believers on the earth at the time in all the nations, but especially even in Babylon. And this is a tremendous warning that is being given in these two verses. Because the Lord warns His people who are living in Babylon to come out of her. And some people would suggest, well, see, now that's where the rapture of the church takes place. No, it isn't. The church has already been gone. We haven't heard any mention of it since chapter 4. So this, this is why we need to kind of really look carefully at what, who we are talking about here. Because it says they're living in Babylon to come out of her, to flee from being partakers in her sins, which is a reminder of something that Jesus said, that if, they, if possible, if possible, the enemy would deceive the very elect. This is something he says in Matthew 24, that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. Well, I like the way that Jesus composed that sentence because if it were possible, but if they're true believers, it's not. <laughs> Be comforted with that thought. But Babylon is about to be severely judged and God is calling out His people. Now, here it is. There is a complete and clear call given here to separation. A clear call to separation. Now, in, in its primary interpretation, it is prophetic. In other words, it is addressed to those tribulation saints of that day living in these countries, you know. Could, there, could it be possible today? Could it be possible today that there are believers in Jesus Christ living in these lands? Do you know that there is? And I think I explained it when we were talking about Dubai where there have been a lot of people that have gone there for, for, lay, for work and they've been turned into slave labor. They've, they've had their, their passports taken away. They won't give them. They will not give them citizenship. But they will treat them as slaves. Both the hard workers that have been doing all the construction of all these major buildings, as well as the sex trade that we talked about, the prostitution rings that these quote-unquote, religious kings are, are overseen in their, in their uh, respective countries. But these, uh, this warning is also to believers in every age from the time that John received this revelation, even to today. It is a warning to believers in our own day who even now can discern the true character of this rising religious, political, and economic system. There is no room, listen carefully, there is no room in thinking that any well-meaning people can stick around and reform it. 
let's just face, let's just face facts here. If we are on the level of just pure government alone, we go into these nations and say we're going to bring democracy to them. Is there democracy in any of these nations today? They keep fighting against it. Some may want it, but most of them don't. And we are losing lives of our own military personnel. And it hurts us every time we see it in the news. There is no room in thinking that any well-meaning person can stick around and reform them religiously. Or politically or economically, for that matter. But now we're talking about spiritually. The call to separation has come to the people of God in every age. In every age. Think about the call to Abraham. Abraham, I'm calling you out from those people that you live amongst who are all worshiping other gods. Probably the moon god there because Mesopotamia, they they worship the moon god. And God called Abraham out of there. God called Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out of there. God called Moses out of Egypt. But more significantly, listen, more significantly is given to us in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah the call to get out of Babylon. Isaiah 48, I'm going to give you a few verses. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Go forth from Babylon. Specifically here. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Now, of course, that was a word to Israel itself. To get out of Babylon. They were in captivity. But God had given them a certain amount of time to be there. And as soon as they're there, get out. As soon as they serve their time, get out of that place. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. This this chapter is about getting out of Babylon. Now I want you to remember to keep some idea of being spiritually clean and not touching anything. Not just in the... the, the, uh, outward sense, but also in the inward sense. Jeremiah 50 verse 8 says, Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like the rams before the flocks. And then there's Jeremiah 51 verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. You know, this phrase up there, and everyone save his life. The idea is run, but don't go sit on a mountain and wait for God to take you. Run. I, I know you've all heard the story. I've, t- I've probably told it before. You know, the major flood comes and hits this little town and some guy gets on top of his roof and he starts to pray and he says, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. You're going to send somebody along uh, or you're going you're gonna to rescue me. You're not going to send anybody. You're going to rescue me. And, and some guy comes in a boat and he says, hey, come jump in. He says, no, God's going to rescue me. The helicopter comes later and the water's even up higher. And then and, and the helicopter says, come on, get on. He says, no, God's going to rescue me. Eventually he gets, uh, you know, he gets, he, he, he drowns. The water got so high, he goes to heaven and he stands there 
you know, before the Lord and the Lord says to him, Hey, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. So listen, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Go, run. Even Jesus talks about that, telling the Jews they need to flee from Jerusalem. Because at that time, uh, you know, that, that's of course he's speaking of, of, of what we've already covered in the seven years of tribulation. Uh, where are we? And everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. So, man, don't be caught doing what they're doing in Babylon, in other words. Uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 45. My people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. Now, from a daily spiritual perspective, this is talking about a nation, you know, fleeing uh, from Babylon. And, and again, we, when we say there's a near fulfillment... There's going to be a far fulfillment as well. That's why here in Revelation 18 it says, there's the cry, come out of her, my people, which is just a, you know, a, a repeat, a, a, a echo, you see, of this, this very cry that's being given in all these uh, 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 prophecies. But from a daily spiritual perspective for us today, folks, as we're waiting the return of Jesus Christ, for us we are exhorted actually in a like manner. We're exhorted in, in, in a like manner. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now that means to be, you know, to be spiritually, physically, uh, in any way, shape, or form connected to an unbeliever as if to say, I mean, in, I mean we all have unbelieving uh, uh, relatives. We also have unbelieving friends. It doesn't tell us, this is not saying you can't talk to them or anything like that. But you, you don't share the same kind of life. You don't share the same kind of goals. I mean, your goal is to look to the coming of Jesus. They're, they're just looking for the next day what, what life has to offer to them. But, but nonetheless, we don't embrace what they embrace. And we're supposed to stay from that. That is why the children of Israel were told, listen, do not intermarry with these other, with, with these other nations. Do not. They did it. Huh. Well, it was, it, was, it was painful to see what happened when we disobey the Lord. You know what people will say today? Well, that's being racist. They just don't understand what God is doing. It's not racist. Because what happened? What did the children of Israel start doing after they started intermarrying with with these other nations that were were, uh, pagan worshipers? The Israelites were worshiping their gods too. That's what happened. So he says, For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light? With darkness. Don't be unequally yoked. You go down to verse 17 and he quotes from the Old Testament. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. We, we read that out of the prophecies. And then Jesus himself was very clear in saying that God's people are not of this world system. God's people are not of this world system. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. 
John 17, verse 14, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer to his father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, he does say in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, he's praying, first of all, for his disciples, because they were going to have to go on and do what? Preach the gospel to all the world. So... He says, don't take them out, but, you know, but keep them from the evil one. So that, that, that stretches out to us. He hasn't taken us out yet because the time isn't right yet. But it's coming. It's very close. So be ready for when the Lord comes for the church. But then he says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So we need to be like Jesus. In that if he's not of the world, neither should we be of the world. But getting back just just for a moment, just for a moment to the Old Testament Scriptures, let me add one more verse that ties in to the current and future issues regarding the Saudi Mystery Babylon connection that I'm asking you to, to consider. And that is, go back to Jeremiah 51, verse 9. Go back to Jeremiah 51, verse 9. And notice what it says. We would have healed Babylon... But she is not healed. Forsake her. And notice the underlying part. And let us go every one to his own country. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The judgment has reached up to heaven. What what does that sound like? It sounds like Babel. They continue to, in their own power, and, and, and intellect and wisdom, they've reached up and God says, okay, well, I'm going to reach out too with judgment for your rejection of me. But that underlying phrase, and let us go everyone to his own country, is quite significant. And I just talked about it about five minutes ago, but it's quite significant in that like ancient Babylon, the last days Babylon, the mystery Babylon, will be filled as I've already said, with many foreigners, with many emigrants, and with refugees, and many of them today are Christian. Many of them are Christian, who make up now and will make up then the massive slave labor force that we spoke of last time and just a few minutes ago that are never offered citizenship. The Lord is going to have mercy on them and on many of them to flee and to return safely to their homelands at Babylon's judgment and destruction. I think that can, be, that can be seen fairly clearly. And it says, let us go everyone to his own country. God will allow them finally that release. But her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. And that's going to bring us back to verse 5 of Revelation chapter 18, because there it says, For her sins have reached to heaven. Again, what does that sound like? It sounds like Babel. Their sins have reached to heaven. They were trying to build this elaborate system of religion, of any religion that had nothing and has nothing whatsoever to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of 
the Jew and the Christian. They were reaching up to the heavens. God says, no, just your sins. Just your sins reached to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. What do her iniquities include? We've talked about it in chapter 17. The cup of the blood of the martyrs. Those who died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Who are, by the way, dying today. It is incredible to read some of the news uh, reports coming out of, uh, of strongly uh, Muslim nations where uh, there's, there's this one woman that was married, uh, who is a Christian, married to a Muslim, and, and, and she, is, uh, uh, she is going to be sentenced to death for, uh, for not uh, forsaking her faith in Christ. Uh, but they showed a little compassion, I understand. They... They decided that they would save her unborn child. They let her give birth to the child. Then they'll kill her. See, I mean, isn't that just merciful? Isn't this a, a just, just a religion of bondage? It's not of, of setting people free. It's, it's just an interesting thing that that's happening. On another note, but it's very similar is, you know, I don't know if you read this, but there was uh, six young people that made a little video on this happy song that uh, some guy sings nowadays. And, you know, they did, it was in Iran, the country of Iran, Ahmadinejad's Iran. Uh, and they actually uh, arrested these people and, and made them, you know, say that they were foolish in doing what they did uh, because a video got viral and it went around and everybody saw it and, and they were having a good time. They were just, you know, having a good time. They weren't doing anything weird. But they weren't. But the women that were in it, three ladies, or young ladies, uh, weren't wearing the hijab, you know, the... the, the, the uh, and they said, well, if, you know, they, they're embracing Western ideas. So, ugh. you know, so they made them say, oh, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, I mean, this is oppressive. It's oppressive. I, you know, that's a cute little song. I mean, but for us, you know, it's, it's cute. You can listen to it if you want. You don't have to listen to it. But over there, they do stuff like that. Hands down. So just as they built that tower in the plains of Shinar and exalted themselves in wanting to reach to heaven on their own power and their own pride and their own intellect, the sins of Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth will reach heaven and come to the attention of a righteous God. And the cup of her sins is now full, and the Lord will repay to her what she has done to others. She will indeed reap what she has sown. But even as this judgment is about to fall, she still boasted. She still boasted about her wealth. And I say in a past tense, but in, in reality, this is what's going to happen. She's boasted about her wealth. She's boasted about her security. She's boasted about her luxurious lifestyle. Just as Belshazzar felt secure in his kingdom as the Medo-Persian army was just outside the door. And that's what we see in Revelation, uh, Revelation 18, verses 6 through 8, the last part of our text for tonight. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. Whenever anything was taken in the law, you know, in the, in the, in the law given to Moses, uh, if anything was taken then it had to be paid back double. That goes back all the way back to the law. 
So render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I will sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. In other words, that's the pride. That's the pride of, of this mystery Babylon. That's the boasting. And therefore her plagues will come in one day. In other words, it's not, it's, it's a short amount of time, really. But it could be one day. And if it is, it's a tremendous uh, judgment because death and mourning and famine will happen. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Isaiah 47, and we're going to close with this here. But Isaiah 47 gives us an insight into the fall of ancient Babylon that parallels the fall of mystery Babylon. So I want you to turn Isaiah 47, verses 7 through 11. And it says, And you said, I shall be a lady forever. Here again is the connection to the boasting that we just saw in Revelation 18. I shall be a lady forever so that you did not take these things to heart nor remember the latter end of them. In other words, you're boasting without remembering that I have already actually sent warning for judgment in essence. Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. What kind of boast is that? Think about it. I am, what are those words? What do they mean? When we hear the word I am, what is it? The name of God. Exodus chapter 3. Moses asked God, he said, when I go to Pharaoh, what name should I give him that I've, I, you know, of, of the God who is requiring me to go? And, and God answered and he said, I am that I am. I am is sending you. So here they say, I am, there's no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Boasting, just continued boasting. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. Notice again the connection. One day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. The second repetition is to say, I'm getting you for this. You're not God. I am. And therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. And by the way, there's one more verse, verse 15. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. In one day, destruction will befall this major financial empire of the world. But take notice of its boldness and its self-glorification in verse 10. I am... And there is no one else besides me. And yet with all of its supposed strength and riches, 
Nothing will be able to stop its fall, for, for it will be God who will judge her. And let's not become complacent in our own nation. We could still arise one morning to find out that the American dollar is not worth the paper it's printed on. We might be very close to that already. You used to buy a piece of gum for a penny. How many of you remember that? And then it went to two cents. Ah! I don't think you can buy a piece of gum for that little bit of money anymore. Well, maybe somewhere. In El Barrio. Yeah, sometimes that's a good place. Let's remember the last line of our text. The last line of our text in verse 8 says, For strong is the Lord God who judges her. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Well, shall we close with this precious verse that states such a tremendous eternal truth of God through all, of the, all that we've seen tonight. I'm going to leave it with you. Luke 14, verse 11. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself. As believers in Jesus Christ, that's all we can do. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God will take care of everything. When facing trial or tribulation, God will take care of it. God has given us wisdom. He's given us the means to be wise. But if anybody sees anything in us, what they have to see is the love of Jesus Christ. We cannot express the love of Christ without a humble heart, without a humble attitude. We've talked a lot about world conditions and, and seen a lot of things, but it still comes down to this. People need the Lord. People need Jesus Christ. And I still to this day thank God for the one person that came and told me about Jesus. I mean, not just about who he is, but the fact that I could know him and know him for eternity. Know him and to be known by him. So, let's continue to remember what our calling is until the day that Christ comes for us. Shall we pray?